Well, hey, one quick update. I kind of teased this out last week, but we are renaming our Ahwatukee campus and we wanted to keep you in the loop. In case you didn't know, we have a Mesa campus, a campus in Ahwatukee. It's awesome, amazing people there. Great things happening every week. And one of the things we've kind of realized over the last couple years now is We'll invite people to church and say, hey, come, come to our Ahwatukee campus if that's closer to you. And oftentimes they'll be like, where's Ahwatukee? And we realize, you know, this is a common problem. They'll go to Google it. They can't spell it. They just give up and continue living as pagans. So we're like, we got to rename this campus and come up with something a little easier to remember, something people know. And we started thinking about it and talking about it. And we want people all around that region in Levine and South Phoenix and and in Ahwatukee and in the foothills and in Chandler and Scottsdale, South Tempe, all those areas. We want them to know that this location is close to them. So it will now be the campus formerly known as the Ahwatukee campus. It will henceforth be known as the South Mountain campus. It's right there, one of the biggest landmarks in the valley, South Mountain. It's a great location, so if you know anyone who lives close to that location, tell them, check out Generation Church, South Mountain. It's also where we have our food pantry, which is an amazing ministry, and it's affiliated with St. Mary's Food Banks, and we are the number three largest food pantry out of 700 food pantries, so we love to just... Help our community that way, show people the love of God, even if they don't go to our church, feed them, and we think that's pleasing to God, amen? Amen. Well, we're in a series called Grace and Truth, and we're talking about, it says in John chapter one, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth, and that's an amazing example for us because we all wanna treat people with grace and love and kindness, but we also wanna speak the truth and stand up for the truth. And it's kinda hard for us as humans to do that perfectly at the same time. So we can look to Jesus and see that he always brought grace and truth into every situation. And then those two things are not mutually exclusive forces. They go together hand in hand. And so tonight I'm gonna talk about kind of a heavier subject, I want to talk about abortion, and the question is, is abortion a sin? And I'll talk about what we should do about it. Now, in every abortion, there are at least two victims, the baby, obviously, but also the mother, and sometimes the father who loses a child without having any say in the situation, but A lot of churches won't talk about abortion because they don't want to make women who've had abortions feel bad. And we don't want to make anyone feel bad about their past. I actually get one or two messages probably a month from women who have had abortions, who belong to our church. And often they're the loudest, most passionate advocates that we should talk about abortion because they don't want other women to go through that pain, that trauma, that loss. They know how hard it is to let that go and leave the past behind. And so I wanna say to anyone who maybe has experienced that or had a hand in something like that, the thing that really matters is, are you in Christ Jesus? Your past is the past. If you're in Christ Christ Jesus, uh, there is no condemnation for you. And so if you confess your sins, God's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, 
He forgets your past and removes it as far as the east is from the west. So, hey, if you've had a past that, say, it has been painful, man, when you bring that to Jesus and you ask for forgiveness, you confess and repent, you are forgiven you experience God's grace. So yes, abortion is a sin, that's the truth. But grace is that all sinners can repent of their sin, be forgiven, healed, cleansed, and fully accepted by God. We believe that, right? So let me get into this. As soon as you start talking about abortion as a Christian, pro-choice and pro-abortion advocates start screeching, what about rape, what about incest, what about the life of the mother being in jeopardy? Those are all good questions. Let's talk about the stats. Here are some stats from Florida. 2018, 70,000 abortions and the reasons for those abortions were captured. 0.01% of the situations involved incest. 0.14 involved rape. And 0.27 said that the pregnancy endangered the woman's life. So together, that makes up less than half of 1% of the cases of abortion. All the rest of the situations basically are in the category of for one reason or another, a mother did not want to continue with the pregnancy. So when I talk about abortion, I wanna also say this. I'm not talking about when a woman's life is legitimately in danger and the only option is to intervene and save her life, which results in losing the pregnancy. Medically, that is called an abortion, but it should not be. It's called a life-saving intervention. It's common sense that that would be okay. Sad, but acceptable. And God understands that. God judges the heart. He knows when you're trying to save a life and when you're trying to take a life. And so we're not talking about intervening to save a life. God understands that. So when I talk about abortion, I'm talking about the choice to end a baby's life because the mother doesn't want it for any reason. That's 99.7% of abortions right there. The purpose of this sermon is to help Christians think about abortion like God does and respond accordingly. And the reason I'm preaching this is because there are many Christians in many churches with a nonchalant attitude about abortion. Like, well, you know, it's not my place to say what someone else should or shouldn't do. I don't want to impose my beliefs on other people. Or, yeah, it's just one issue out of many important issues. All you got to do is look at the stats of how many Americans identify as Christians and how many Americans are pro-life, and you see that they don't add up. Something doesn't match up. So in order to believe that abortion is a sin, you first have to believe that a human being in the womb has value. Let me first ask this. When does life begin? What does God say about this? Many cultures don't believe that a baby even has a soul until it's born. And then in some cultures, they don't name a baby until some time after it's born. Because in historical senses, infant mortality rates were much higher. So parents didn't want to always get attached to a baby until they knew it would live. So they would wait a while to name the baby and then get attached to it. And I think that pro-abortion advocates do something kind of similar today. They try to remain detached from the baby in the womb by calling it a fetus, a more medical, sterile term, so as not to feel all the complicated emotions that come with choosing to end the baby's life. They don't talk about killing babies. They talk about terminating a pregnancy. But you cannot terminate a pregnancy without terminating a person. 
In Jeremiah chapter one, it says this, the Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. And then in Isaiah, it says, the Lord called me before my birth. From within the womb, he called me by name. And then Psalm 22, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So here's the prophet Jeremiah, Isaiah, and David, all describing that God knows us even in the womb. He calls us by name. Can't have a name unless you're a person. And he assigned a purpose for our lives in the womb. This isn't just true for them, it's also true for Jesus. We see in Luke chapter one, it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is this child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So here's Elizabeth, she's pregnant. She encounters Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's also pregnant with Jesus. The baby leaps in her womb, the Bible says, for joy. Because it knew it was in the presence. That baby, he knew he was in the presence of the son of God, even though Jesus was in the womb of his mother. And Elizabeth said, the mother of my Lord. See, Jesus was Lord even in the womb. He was Lord. This is true also for you. God knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb. He called you by name and he assigned a purpose for your life before you were even born. That says a lot about what God thinks about you and how much he values you. Now, because of medical imaging and ultrasounds today, we can track and see a baby's development in the womb even at a very early state. At eight weeks, baby's eyelids and ears are forming. The nose is identifiable. Legs and arms are starting to become fully formed. And fingers and toes are becoming more distinct. At 12 weeks, a baby's about two inches, starts to move. A doctor can hear the baby's heartbeat and its sex organs start to become clear. At 16 weeks, the baby's four to five inches and about three and a half ounces the baby can blink and the heart and blood vessels are fully formed and now the baby has fingerprints. At 20 weeks, the baby can suck his thumb, yawn, stretch, make faces, and moms start to feel the baby move. And then at 24 weeks, now with medical intervention, babies can survive even outside the womb. Sometimes even as early as 22 and 23 weeks, but very confidently, at 24 weeks, babies can survive outside the womb with medical care. Now, we live in a world that celebrates science. Trust the science until it's not convenient. When we talk about issues like sexuality and gender confusion and abortion, then completely ignore the science. And if anyone brings up science, attack them and call them a hateful bigot. See, pro-abortion advocates, they fight to protect the environment, they fight to protect animal rights, and then they also turn around and fight for the right to kill a human being in the womb. God's word and science confirm that these babies are humans. They're alive. They have value. But the world doesn't want to acknowledge that. They just respond, uh, what about rape? 
Or here we go again. A man is trying to control my body. See, Jesus has no interest in controlling anyone's body, but God does care about saving the life of a baby inside a woman's body. These babies deserve to live. A baby's life has value in the womb. Here's an interesting account in Exodus 21. It says, now suppose two men are fighting. Men do that kind of thing, don't they? Those guys. And in the process, they accidentally strike a pregnant woman, so she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands, and the judges approve. But if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury, a life for a life and an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So here you see this situation described is two guys are fighting. They bump into a pregnant woman. She gives birth prematurely. If everybody's okay, the guy has to pay a fine. If there's further injury, the punishment has to fit the crime. All that kind of highlights that, that God looks at a pregnant woman and that baby inside of her, and it's not just a mass of cells. It's a, it's a person. It's a human being with value. There's so much hypocrisy in our society about abortion. For example, in 38 states, there exists fetal homicide laws. Fetal homicide laws. Basically what that means is if I commit a crime and in the process of committing a crime, a baby in the womb is hurt or dies, the punishment for my crime then becomes that much more severe, which shows the baby's life in the womb has value. But in those same 38 states, abortion is legal. So you see that the killing a baby in the womb is either a crime or a protected right, depending on who chose to kill the baby. Does it make sense that a person's life and their value as a human being should be determined by just one person's opinion? Think about this logically. Does this make sense? If the mother wants to give birth, the baby's life is extremely precious. But if the mother does not want to give birth, the baby's life is completely worthless. Does that make sense? Not, not, not even asking like as a Christian based on the Bible, but just logically. Morally, does that make sense that just based on the wants of one person, a person's life is either worthless or precious? Doesn't make sense. How can a, a baby in the womb have no right to live a day before her birth and then 24 hours later have all rights as a U.S. citizen and be protected under the law? The only thing that, that changed during those 24 hours was her place of residence. What side of the birth canal is she on? It's either open season on babies in the womb or she's got protected rights as a citizen. In our country, it's harder to kill a deer than a baby. Puppies have more protection than babies in the womb. This doesn't make any sense. So... What should Christians do about it? Well, there's some things that are obvious. We first off should help as many people get saved as possible. We wanna help people get saved and find Jesus and experience new life and then start living according to God's principles. So if people become Christians and follow God's word for their lives, then they'll enjoy sex only the way God designs 
between one man and one woman in marriage. Imagine that. Imagine that. Isn't that crazy just to think about? Like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. And if you do it God's way, then you'll find that the amount of suffering and pain and abuse around sex is diminished greatly. 85% of abortions happen outside of marriage. So if we just help people find Jesus and live God's way, that will take care of a lot of abortions right there. And then the other thing we need to do is help pregnant, vulnerable women who feel like they have no other choices. We need to support them. We need to resource them. We need to love them and never shame them. We all agree on that, right? We all agree on that? Yeah. There's really no debate on that issue, on that subject. We do that. So I'm not trying to convince you of something we all agree on. I'm here tonight to talk about the awkward stuff that we don't always all agree on. Is that okay? Okay, so what should Christians do about it? First, we should fight for life. We should fight for life. It says this in Proverbs 31. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and needy. See that word defend? That is an active posture of protecting someone in need. If, if a bad guy was gonna break into my house and try to hurt my wife or my daughter, I am called as the father and husband, the leader of the home, to defend them in their time of need. Not just, you know, get down on my knees and pray as a Christian, like, God, help them. He sent me to help them. <laughs> Not just hope for a better day. Yeah, man, gotta hope for better days. Not to sit around and think philosophically about what caused that bad guy to feel the need to break into my home? What societal programs do we need to create so that he doesn't feel like that's his only option? No, I'm called to defend my wife my daughter. That means I'm going to use my words, my fist, weapons, tooth and nail, whatever it takes physically to stop the threat. I'm going to do it, whatever it takes. Amen. So there are a lot of poor and needy people groups who we should speak up for and show love to. We should speak up for anyone who suffers injustice. We should also judge fairly, scripture says. So we should judge fairly. Some people, they suffer, but it's their own sins that bring suffering on themselves. And we have to acknowledge that. We should still feel compassion for people who suffer, but judge fairly. And then we see that just no demographic or people group is more vulnerable and helpless than babies in the womb. Bible says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. No other group is more in need than babies in the womb. They cannot march or vote or fight for their rights. Their only hope is that maybe Bible-believing Christians might defend their right to life. We live in a country where it is so easy to take the life of a baby in the womb. The only requirement to kill a baby is it has to be your baby and still be inside of you. Most Christians aren't happy about that. 
I haven't really met anybody that likes abortion. But what concerns me so much as a pastor is that Christians think it's okay to be pro-choice. And their attitude is like, well, yeah, I mean, nobody wants abortion, but I'm not really sure it's my place to say what someone else should or shouldn't do. I don't think it's my place to impose my beliefs on someone else. Very nonchalant, very hands-off. It's really easy to be nonchalant about this when you've already been born. Have you ever noticed that, that every pro-choice advocate already been born? Feels a little hypocritical, right? So think about a baby in the womb, 28 weeks. A pro-choice advocate says, you know, it's not, it's not that I want this baby to be killed, but who am I to say that someone else shouldn't be able to kill her own baby? Or then the, the other thing I've heard recently is that, you know, some groups, they want to make abortion illegal. Other groups, politicians or people, they just want, they want to make it unnecessary. Some groups are pro-life and want to make it illegal. Other groups are pro-choice, but they want to make it unnecessary through better education, programs, and resources. So think about applying this type of logic to other atrocities. Think about being pro-choice on slavery. Imagine, you know, well, I'm not really for slavery, but is it really my place to tell other people that they can't have slaves? I mean, some people wanna make it illegal. Other people wanna make it unnecessary by better education for slave owners and to show them their other economic options. Think about being pro-choice on child abuse. I'm not for child molestation, but is it my place to say that someone else shouldn't be able to molest their own child? Some people want to make it illegal. Other people want to make it unnecessary by better education for child molesters. Think about special needs children, children with special needs, right? In many cultures throughout history, it was totally legal to kill this child after birth. It was totally legal to kill this child. Think about being pro-choice on that today. Yeah, I'm not for killing children with special needs, but it's not my child. Is it really my place to say that some other parents shouldn't be able to kill their own child with special needs? Some people want to make that illegal. Other people want to make it unnecessary by educating these parents and intervening with medical advancements. Let's, let's go there. Let's talk about the Holocaust. Imagine being pro-choice on the Holocaust. Yeah, I mean, I personally don't like it, but it's not my place to tell Nazis what they should do with Jews in their own country. Can you just hear the Nazis now? My country, my choice. Keep your hands off my country. Some people want to make killing Jews illegal. Other people want to make it unnecessary by better education for Nazis and to help them keep Jews from coming in in the first place. This is the stupidest logic I can possibly imagine. Abortion should not be illegal because that's the most effective way to stop it even or because of whose baby is or how that baby came to be or where the baby is located. Abortion should be illegal because it's morally wrong. It is clearly morally evil. I think Christians 
need to stop overcomplicating these issues. That's one of the things God has been highlighting in my heart lately is there's all this nuance. Like, well, what if? What if this happens? And what about this? And, and what caused this even to exist? And maybe we need to do that. It's just like, stop it. Stop. It's so clearly morally wrong. There are a lot of issues in this world that are gray, ambiguous, up for debate, unclear, but this is not one of them. We should fight against it. And in doing that, here's the second thing. What should Christians do about it? We should vote pro-life. So let me say this. I'm not gonna tell you which specific candidates to vote for ever. I'm not gonna try to tell you what party to vote for. You've gotta follow the Holy Spirit's guidance but I will talk about who not to vote for. Now I realize before I go further that maybe some of you have voted for pro-choice candidates in the past. This is not about me trying to make you feel bad for that. I'm not trying to beat you up over that. We don't do that with anything. We don't beat people up over their past or try to shame them or guilt trip them or make them feel bad. I'm trying to help you live for God righteously in your future. I'm trying to help you with the choices you will make going forward, okay? We all live under God's grace and mercy. Let's talk about the future and how to live in a way that glorifies God. I think about our country today and our system, and I imagine you know, explaining it to Christians that lived 2,000 years ago in the first and second century under tyrannical emperors and kings and dictators who oppressed Christians and persecuted the church. Could you imagine explaining to them how we today as Christians get to vote about who our leaders will be? Yeah, we get to vote. They'd be like, wait, what? You get to vote about who's gonna run your country and how things are gonna work? So it must be awesome, right? Everyone must live righteously. And you'd be like, well, I mean, I wanna live righteously, but it's not really my place to impose my beliefs on other people. They'd be like, but wait, you get to vote? I don't understand. See, with voting, you have power. With voting, you have power. And we, as Christians, have the power to defend the helpless with our vote. We know abortion is wrong, that it's displeasing to God, that really it's murder, and the only thing we can do to legally stop it is to vote pro-life. The question always comes up, well, should Christians really be trying to legislate their beliefs on other people? Yes. Yes, we should. Here's the thing. We're not trying to legislate religious beliefs. We're not trying to make people sing to Jesus or take communion or get baptized. That would be pointless. We're trying to legislate moral beliefs. Moral beliefs, things like don't steal, kill, abuse children in and out of the womb. You don't even need the Bible to realize that godly morals are good for society. And here's the thing, godly morals guiding society is good and it helps people and when we live in God's ways, we're blessed. 
even when we don't do it for the right reasons. So here we live in a society where atheists and Satanists and all kinds of evil people in between who are godless are voting their beliefs. They're imposing their beliefs on society. Who better to impose moral beliefs than us, <laughs> right? We know that life is better when you do it God's way. Don't kill, don't steal, don't cheat. Kids are gonna be healthier when they do get the opportunity to be raised by mom and dad in a stable home. That's God's design. Of course it works better. The Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's self-evident that the right to life does not come from a party. It comes from our creator. And no party has the right to take it away. So that means that to vote for abortion is to vote against God. Sadly, many politicians, they will do and say whatever in order to get themselves elected. Whether they even believe it or not, Oftentimes they'll change and flip-flop just based on the tides of public opinion, including when it comes to abortion rights. It makes me think of Amos chapter one, which says this. This is what the Lord says. The people of Ammon have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. When they attacked Gilead to extend their borders, they ripped open pregnant women with their swords. And I feel like just the image of politicians came to mind seeking to extend their political borders, their power and their influence, even being willing to rip babies from their mother's wombs by voting for abortion rights. Today, 62% of Americans say they're pro-choice. Some politicians, therefore, who used to be moderate about abortion have become fully engaged, fully embracing of abortion rights with no restrictions. And that... And that's bad enough, but what really concerns me as a pastor is that at the same time here, Christians who surely don't like abortion are voting for pro-choice candidates. You know, I don't, I don't really like abortion, but his other policies are a lot better for me and my family. It makes me think of Deuteronomy 27. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. And all the people shall say, amen. If I vote for someone whose policies are better for me, but that results in more innocent babies' blood being shed, how am I any different than someone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood? Morally, it's the same thing. So as a Christian, my personal, my spiritual view is that no abortion should be legal. And again, I'm not talking about saving the life of a mother. That's always been legal to surgically intervene to save the life of a mother. That's not even an abortion. I'm talking about choosing to end the life of a baby for any reason. No abortion should be legal. What about a baby that comes from rape? Yeah, the baby didn't commit the crime. A baby should not be punished for the crimes of the father. Let the baby be adopted. One sin does not justify more sin. Here's what I think is pretty clear. If abortion were illegal, 
it would be harder to get. Pretty common sense. Therefore, less babies would be killed. And then less mothers would be traumatized. Now, it's impossible to know how many babies were killed before it was legal. But since 1973, more than 60 million babies have been legally aborted in the United States. That is 10 holocausts in our country, which means no other atrocity, no other injustice in American history can even hold a candle to 60 million babies being aborted in the United States. And the fact that it's legal means our society says, this is fine. The fact that our president signed an executive order in his first few days in office to restore federal funding for Planned Parenthood says, not only is this fine, but we should help these women have abortions by paying for it with tax dollars so that there's even less Reason not to. Planned Parenthood was founded by Margaret Sanger, I've talked about this before, who was a white supremacist and a part of the KKK, spoke at KKK rallies. Planned Parenthood was started intentionally to kill minorities. It was intentionally, they were, the centers were intentionally placed in urban populations for the purpose of killing African Americans. And I've got to say, sadly, they've been relatively successful in their mission. The USA Today says that black women are five times more likely to have an abortion than white women. In New York City, more black babies are aborted than born alive every year. That... You see, Planned Parenthood is a racist, satanic, evil organization. Our government funds it, and I guarantee the devil loves it. The devil loves it. They don't exist for reproductive rights. They kill almost half the babies that are aborted in America each year. And so as Christians, because we love all people and we need to fight to protect those who are vulnerable, including minorities that live in lower socioeconomic classes that are more vulnerable and susceptible to abortion, we should be pro-life as Christians. We should be fighting against this atrocity that disproportionately hurts people of color and minorities. At one point, pro-choice advocate Bill Clinton said, abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. First off, I don't call 60 million babies rare. Not rare, in my view. Now the language has shifted and pro-choice advocates don't care anymore if it's rare. So I debated if I should be this clear and lay this all out for you, but I feel like God wants me to, so I'm going to. Here's an article from the New York Times I found before the 2020 election on abortion rights. The New York Times, 2020 Democrats move past safe, legal, and rare. The Democratic presidential candidates don't want to simply defend abortion rights. They want to go on offense. That's the thing about sin. It's never content. It always wants to destroy more, hurt more, kill more, cause more pain and suffering. So this article describes how the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates were asked about abortion. I'll just read some of their words. Bernie Sanders said, 
Not like President Clinton, he said, abortion should be safe, legal, and accessible to every person who chooses it. Every person who chooses it. What about a 15-year-old whose mom doesn't even know she's pregnant? Every person. What about a woman who's eight and a half months pregnant? Every person who chooses it. Elizabeth Warren said, abortion is health care, and health care is a human right. She argued that abortion rights were also economic rights. First off, abortion is not health care because babies are not diseases that need to be cured. And then when this talks about economic rights, the translation here is if a baby is going to interfere with your career, you should go ahead and kill it because it's better for you financially which reminds me of the Old Testament times when the Canaanites would sacrifice babies to the false god Molech to be blessed in their harvest and financially. Makes me think about that still here today. Think about a baby 24 weeks old can live outside the womb. 24 weeks can live outside the womb. In this article in the New York Times, those candidates, it says, asked if they support restrictions after 24 weeks Roughly when a healthy fetus can survive outside the womb, only one, Mr. Sestak, out of all the candidates, said yes. Only one of these candidates could bring themselves to say, hey, after this point, maybe we should have some, at least some restrictions. And that's the way this has moved. That's the way the pro-choice movement has gone. Now they want no restrictions whatsoever for abortion, even up till the point of birth, that's evil. So just real talk, as if this wasn't real enough. Real talk. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm just talking about who not to vote for. We should vote pro-life. Here's the thing. Today, right now, currently, there are almost no pro-life Democrats in office. There is one congressman from Texas currently that I can find. The, re- the other four like lost their, the election last March. There's one. There used to be 125 pro-life Democrats. Today, there's only one. So if you find one, call the Endangered Species Protective Services. <laughs> it's hard to be a pro-life Democrat because your own party attacks you now. With independents, about one-third of independents are pro-life. And then, right now, almost all Republicans are pro-life. There are some who are pro-choice. Here's what I don't want to do. I'm not trying to endorse a party. That's that's something that actually concerns me a lot as a pastor. I want to preach the Bible. I want to be really clear about what God says, what he thinks, how he feels the best I can. But... I struggle sometimes because I don't want people thinking I'm trying to push a certain party or promote certain candidates. That's not what I want. I just want truth and grace. So here's the deal. If you vote for a pro-choice politician as a Christian, you're using your power to put a person in power who is going to fight for abortion rights, which is a sin. In the legal system today, when you help someone else commit a crime, it's called aiding and abetting. 
So voting pro-choice effectively makes you pro-choice. You might as well be because the outcome is no different. In Matthew 27, it says this, very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus, who's called the Messiah? The crowd shouted back, uh, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. So think about what we're seeing here. Pilate is the governor. He's facing an angry mob that wants to kill Jesus. An angry mob, just like we face an angry mob today that wants to kill babies and fight for the right to be able to kill babies with no restrictions. An angry mob that will attack Christians for standing up for what's right and call us haters and bigots. Pilate was facing an angry mob in his day. And here's what, Jesus was standing right in front of him. John chapter one says, the word became flesh and made his home among us. Jesus is the living word of God. Pilate looked right past the living word of God and he chose to let a self-proclaimed innocent man Pilate identified Jesus as innocent, having committed no crime. Pilate chose to let an innocent man's blood be shed. Why did he do it? Because it was socially and politically in his own best interest. And then to soothe his own guilty conscience, he said, well, I'm going to wash my hands of this. And it's not my fault because I'm not the one that chose to kill him. It was you all. And here's what the Lord revealed to me this week that Christians who vote pro-choice are just like Pilate. They look right past what the word of God makes so clear. They often give in to the pressure of the crowd. They do what's in their own best interest. Yeah, I don't like abortion, but his other policies are better for me. And they allow the innocent blood of babies to be shed. And then they think they can just wash their hands of it because, well, you know, I'm not the one that chose to do it. I'm not, I'm not for it. I'm just pro-choice. Right. Are God's views guiding your life? Or are you trying to stuff God into your own political agenda? It says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Today, I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. This passage, the context is obviously not specifically about abortion, but it surely applies that God gives us a choice every day to choose between death and life, blessing and curses, God's way or the world's way. And he calls on us to choose life. Choose what God chooses. 
Let God's will guide every decision for your life. So many Christians, they start with their own desires, their own agenda, their own affinity, and then they try to make God fit their agenda. But as Christians, we're called to submit every part of our lives to him and let his desires dictate what our desires will be. God is all about life. The Bible is pro-life and God is pro-life. Everything God does is for life. He first breathed life into the dust and formed man. He gave us life. And then when we messed it up, he sent his son Jesus to restore us back to life. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so that we could live for God. He wants every single one of us to have eternal life. He calls Christians to fight for life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the truth leads us to life. So there's really two things I want to talk about as we close this. Maybe there are some people with us tonight or listening to this message, and something about this might be convicting to you. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, he gives us an awareness that we've done wrong and that we've violated God's standards, that we've missed the mark. It's very different than the condemnation that comes from Satan. Satan's condemnation, it belittles us. It attacks our identity. It says God could never love you. He could never accept you. Satan brings shame and condemnation. The Holy Spirit He lovingly encourages us and pulls us towards righteousness. He says, that was not right, but I wanna help you do better. And I still love you. I wanna guide you, so follow me. So when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, maybe some of you hear this message and something about it convicts you. When the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, you can either dig your heels in and fight back and make excuses and and justifications and logical backflips trying to, to justify what you've done, or you can humble yourself and just acknowledge, yeah, I've sinned. And confess your sin to God. Say, God, I've, I've sinned, I've thought wrong, or I've acted wrong, and I'm here humbly asking for your forgiveness. I wanna do better. And we know that in that moment, we're forgiven, And we can continue forward immediately in God's full grace, his favor and his acceptance. That's the beauty of following Jesus. So there could be people with us tonight that say, man, this message encourages me and what I already believe to be true. Other people could be saying, you know, I feel convicted about what I used to believe and and I wanna align my thoughts and desires with God's thoughts. And then there could be people here tonight that need to accept Jesus maybe for the first time and be forgiven for the first time. So wherever you're at, let's do this. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes for a moment. If you say, I need to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to be forgiven of sin. I want to be adopted into God's family. I want a clean slate. Then do this with me. Just pray and say, God, I need you. Wherever you're at, just pray. Say, God, I need your forgiveness. I ask Jesus to come into my life and save me. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose again so I could have victory. I believe Jesus is the son of God and I want him to lead me and guide me. Thank you for loving me. 
Help me now, Lord, to love you back with my life and to love other people the way that you do. In Jesus' name.